0: Welcome to the Breaking Health Podcast, a series of discussions with the most disruptive CEOs and leaders in digital health.
1: Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Breaking Health Podcast. I'm here with our host,
2: uh, Steve Krupa of the Silos. Group. Hey, Steve. Hey, Tom. How are you?
1: I'm doing great. How are things over there?
2: Excellent. So the weather's getting better in New York, hopefully in Boston too.
1: Yeah, you know, we, we're uh, still in the 40s and 50s, uh, but I'll, I'll certainly take it. I think I'm, I put the snow shovel away two weeks ago. Of course, it got hit with a storm last weekend, but I'm going to put it away, aren't it. Uh, <laughs> uh, screw you, Mother Nature. I'm tired of seeing that damn snow shovel. Yeah, so. throw it away. Throw it away. <laughs> we won't need even that again. <laughs> Uh, so today we had a great, uh, you had a great conversation. I should say, with a company that uh, I think will resonate uh, or 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 will seem very important to anyone who has uh, parents to care for and family members who need their assistance. You uh, got to speak with Travis Bond at, at CareSync. Tell us a bit about CareSync.
2: Yeah, care, CareSync was developed uh, to utilize smartphones and networking. Uh, to bring families together to take care of their loved ones when they had a medical crisis, whether you know, most most commonly with elderly people, but when you listen to the interview, you say you 'll hear that it was inspired by a, a child that had an il- illness that needed a lot of attention from uh, from their parents and the, and the whole idea was to create this broad network of family members that would connect with the doctors and so that the uh, family members could support um, the patient uh, and help them through. Uh, the process of getting well and seeing physicians and so forth. Um, what that has evolved into uh, in, in a short period of time is the notion of chronic care management, um, and which is exactly what CareSync provides, and the, the sort of boon for the business uh, is the new Medicare code that provides primary care doctors with the ability to get reimbursed for monitoring patients with chronic illnesses. So Travis can now add physicians to this network, and uh, the physicians can get compensated for participating in managing the care.
1: And I think that's where it really has to happen, that you have to have the physicians sort of be the evangelists of this. I guess the physicians and the, the family members, but how do you reach the family members and let them know about this, this kind of service? It really has to come from the physicians, doesn't it?
2: Yeah, I think the, what will happen is uh, there's about a $40 PMPM PM fee that a primary care doctor can, can get reimbursed for establishing this connection with the patient. And the care sync system is designed to invite the family members in. It's then designed to link up with data and provide you know a full suite of clinical information to everyone that has access uh, to help the patient to manage their care. And it will be, I think in the long run, uh, the physician's office through uh, nurses uh, that will spend a lot of time monitoring care plans and making sure that patients are following them, but it will be open to the family members as well, and I think that's important.
1: Terrific. Well, let's not take any more time away from uh, this conversation with uh, Travis
2: Bond at CareSync. Uh, welcome to the Breaking Health Podcast. I'm here with uh, Travis Bond, CEO of CareSync. Welcome, Travis.
0: Thank you very much, and good morning.
2: Good morning. You know, we're going to talk about uh, chronic care management, but I want to get—I want to get into a little bit of personal stuff, too, uh because it's a common question that comes up as I talk to entrepreneurs. And and you've been, you know, a long-standing entrepreneur. I think you told me this was your ninth company that you've. Uh, it is. Uh, but you also were thinking about becoming a doctor, and I always am curious. When when did it switch for you? When did the sort of light bulb go on, and you said, you know, I don't want to be a doctor. I want to be a businessman.
0: Well, I think the interesting thing about, um, you know, being a doctor and being an entrepreneur is they're not so dissimilar in that at their core, they're problem solvers. Yep. And for me, as I was going through undergrad, I had businesses and startups, you know, in some type of technology area where, you know, classic building, you know, building computers out of one dorm you know, room and, and sort of selling them, etc. Um, but it was. It was towards the end of my first bachelor's degree where I thought, you know, I really loved science. I really loved, you know, the opportunity of, you know, of discovery and and sort of complex problem solving, and it actually having social good. Meaning that, you know, if you can solve a person's problem, um, similar to solving an industry's problem, then you, you really can sort of get back from that experience. And for me, it was, you know, this this parallel of loving science that sort of kind of directed me into into medical school. Right. And so I, you know, I, I went and attended three years of, uh, of medical school and an MD program at University of South Florida. But it was during that time that sort of really brought me behind the curtain and saw how sort of broken healthcare was. So it wasn't just the patients that were actually, you know, needed special care. It really was the industry needed special care. And I think then that's when for me that, that sort of the business elements and the attraction to sort of fixing a problem at a more macro level became became more of um, of a driver for me intellectually, and uh, and so at the end of my third year, I decided to sort of turn in my keys and badge, right. and, uh, and and go into healthcare, but in this time, do it from the business and technology standpoint.
2: And you know, in in fairness, that that was not that was a that was a a, a while ago, right? It was the '90s that you sort of came to that conclusion, yeah. right?
0: Yeah. When, well, I went into med school in 1997, and yeah. then um, and it was in 2001 that I decided to leave
2: close enough to the 90s for me anyway <laughs> but it's funny i guess you know we i that was sort of my my i came into healthcare in 94 95 um really the you know sort of the tail end of the hmo boom what what was going on as you were studying medicine that made you realize that health care was broken because i think we all think it's broken at some to some extent
0: I think there was a couple things. One is, um, is, is that really the, the healthcare deliverers were were extraordinarily grumpy. <laughs> they were, they were, they were, they did not have high job satisfaction scores. And so it was, it was really kind of, a, you know, a mirroring, if you will, of the future into the present that really had to sort of be dealt with. Meaning that, you know, are these people, you know, in mass really loving their job? And they weren't. And in part, they weren't, because when you really look at it, a physician's point of view, you are a, di- you know, um, diagnostics and, and how you are interpreting, you know, various data elements is what makes up your decision. And you have to obviously understand the body. You have to understand how to interview a person and get data, you know, what tests to order. And then you have to study all the treatment methodologies out there and you have to match them all up. And the thing that I saw from from a business perspective was, is that I was running all over the proverbial hospital to get different results, different mm-hmm. data points. And sometimes the patient was a good data point. Sometimes it had to be a relative. Sometimes you couldn't use any human in, um you know, data source, if you will, because they were just poor historians and they couldn't remember or, you know, other sort of things. So it was, it was very frustrating that the, the part that was so sort of a discouraging contrast, but at the same time, an encouraging contrast was is that so many other business sectors of our economy had started to really use technology and advance themselves, right? And you had these sure. enterprise business systems, you had Oracle and SAP, and you started to see this sort of collaboration of workforces sharing information in real time that were sort of differentiating them operationally, marketing, sales-wise from from other competitors within their space. And for me, I was amazed at how many times I would be roaming the halls with my pharma pen, writing the same thing into a patient's chart that I wrote the last three mornings. And it was just like, you know, if anything, could someone just create a copy-paste ballpoint pen? Because it really, (laughs) and then, you know, one would start to say, it's like, wow, you know, I've trained, I've done all this other stuff. And really what I'm doing is I'm documenting in a way that is more of, you know, creating a you know, a history book, then it really is definitively getting to the problem. And and really, and so you've kind of burnt out on trying to just get the data that you really don't even have the time to sort of get deep into something before you're on to the next patient. And so it was just the built-in inefficiencies and all the siloing, if you will, of, you know, you call in a person to do a consult and then you found that you missed them five minutes. And if they didn't write something in the chart, you just have to wait for them to come back to the hospital the next day. And so it was just really yep. a lot of those frustrations. It sort of said, look, you know, healthcare is really messed up, but yet it's very hard when you sort of from a business perspective, see that it generates so much revenue. You have to ask yourself is that, you know, anything with this much cash flow surely can be fixed. And so I think that that's where I sort of saw myself as sort of looking at a problem from a macro level with a business background, but now having enough Intimate training in the healthcare setting, meaning intimate and knowing what it was like to actually sit bedside and watch someone die, to actually help to have a person give birth, you know, to tell somebody the bad news and sort of get to see the workflow of the human element as well as, you know, what does it mean to be a nurse? What does it mean to be a a physician assistant or doctor and how those different roles um, are, are sort of, you know, carried out in the delivery of care? So it was great training backdrop from really understanding clinical at an intimate level. But that business sort of experience really was like a nagging bell in my head that said, you know, this can be fixed. Terrific. I mean, so when you left, did you start a company right away? I really did. Well, actually, I had one during med school. And that was kind of the problem was is that um, by my third year, um, Bond Medical was doing um, about a million dollars top line revenue. And I had nine employees. <laughs> now, these are things that thou shalt not do. On the short list of when you become a med student, yeah. you're not even allowed to wait tables, much less run a company that's million-dollar revenue generator. And so, um, so I was really sort of torn between having to really manage a company, manage my studies, and um, you know, and, and now have a, you know, a one-year-old. You know, I got, you know, my wife gave birth to my second year of med school. So there was just a lot of competing things going on. But the interesting thing that I did do, though, is that when I did live med school, obviously, I had a place that was generating income and and, and really had the opportunities that other people don't have in med school. Because you get to the point where you're so deep in debt that even if you don't like healthcare, it's too late. <laughs> you yeah. know, there's you, you have to really sort of finish the race so that you have a income. um Generator that now can basically service the debt from the med school education. For me, then, though, I, you know, what I did do, which was somewhat, um, in in retrospect, was was very helpful, was that I was able to leverage resources from Bond Medical to create Bond Technologies, which then became the first, the world's first browser based electronic medical record system. And I was allowed to sort of, you know, shepherd that growth, um, using the synergy from other companies that I owned to sort of fund it. And, um, you know, put together a lot of great people that are still working with me today. And we were able to sort of exit, um, in 2008 for about $45 million. And so the story had a good progression. Um, and I would have never been able to take new technology with fundamental understanding of clinical, uh, and sort of marry those two together in such a way that it was disruptive at the time, because most people, Um, you know, did not think that the internet or browsers would really be a a platform to really interact with data, um, other than surfing a web page. They never, and so for us, though it seemed somewhat kooky, um, we really did find ourselves to sort of be the grandfather of this new space. And, And obviously, Eclipsis, as a hospital technology company, recognized that ambulatory people are not a captive audience. They move around a lot, you know, right. they go from exam yeah. room to exam room. They go home and finish up their charts. They go to a hospital and they're still need access. So it worked out for us.
2: Awesome. So let's let's talk a little bit about chronic care management. And um, I think it's safe to say, I think you started the company around 2011. Am I? Do I have that right? That's right, yeah. Okay, so you probably started it before chronic care management was, quote, cool. And by cool, I mean before, you know, code nine nine four nine oh right so give me an idea of what you were thinking when you started this i mean obviously you had the same you were imagining something and looking back on things you can always say well that was a great idea but at the time i want to know why it was a great idea why in 2011 was this a great idea
0: well i tell you you know it 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 was a risky idea because what it sort of the similar gap analysis that most entrepreneurs are just have that gene and they kind of look at something and they see what's missing. Um, what what we had was was um, a, a dear friend of mine, Amy Gleason, who was our head of development at Bond Technologies, um, who is a nurse who has worked at various companies and created, you know, or helped create four EMRs. Her daughter, um, at the age of 11, um, back in 2009, I think 2010, actually got diagnosed with a rare autoimmune disease. So so nothing she did, it was just her body had turned against her, but it did it in such a way that there's only three to 5,000 kids that have this disease. And, and, and so what you then find yourself as a caregiver, as a mother, now finding that in order to get care at an expert level, your daughter has to fly to three different states, within a calendar year and is being seen by 12 physicians using nine different systems. And then you find that this is really where the heart of healthcare Mm -hmm. got it wrong, is that all of that is siloed. And so is Amy Gleason, you know, very experienced woman in health information technology, a nurse by training and licensure, a mom who is passionately a caregiver for her daughter, finding herself no better off than the 80-year-old husband of an ailing wife with Alzheimer's. You know, confused, overwhelmed, too many people um, trying to work on too many different data of uh, body systems and trying to somehow make some sense of it all. And she and I were having these conversations. She, she tried to use our, our, our EMR, you know, as, as as a caregiver to see if she could keep Morgan's information straight. She tried to use Excel, she tried to use, you know, email. Um, and the, there was just really no tool. So I think that what we had really envisioned was, is there a place Have we come to a point where technology and other things are in our favor to create a family-based EMR? Mm -hmm. And that really became the genesis of CareSync. And it was if we had a way to to really create a master patient chart and that it was social because now social was cool. It was things that we now were familiar with the workflow. Could we now have Morgan's records all in one place? And can Morgan have caregivers who now can act on behalf of Morgan to share information, add that information, and be a good historian of that information at points of care? Yeah. So we had mobile, we had social, we, we knew how to build an EMR, we knew that any good technology in healthcare has to be tethered back to medical vocabulary data sets to standardize the data so that it can be organized, you know, repurposed, reused, et cetera, added to other people's data. Um, and, and to put it, you know, really what we did was create a longitudinal record that was now social. And one of the things that we, we talk about is how we familitized you know, this data. Okay,
2: I'm going and to look that word up and see if I can... You
0: know. it's, I created it, so um, you won't find it. But, you know, it's one of those interesting yeah. things that, that how vendors got it wrong is that none of their portal technology is familytized. EMRs yeah. are not familytized And really, it's, it kind of goes back to sort of the, some of the frustration of, of, of roaming the hospital you know, floors early in the morning, you know, in 2000, you know, 1999 in, in that area was, is that, wow, this is all fragmented. Um, my first patient actually died, um, from the fact that, um, you know, two doctors prescribed morphine, but one did it by injectable and one did it by inhaler. And she got them both. She took them both and she, she died. And so it was, you know, but these are, we call them now medical errors, but it really is. It's, it's really just a lack of good collaboration of data. Yeah. It's not a medical error. That's
2: a system error. That's a workflow error. That's whatever you want to call it. It's, both doctors were yeah, probably right but to Mrs. prescribe B, the evidence. Mrs. B is dead, right? Yeah. No, <laughs> so no, no. I mean, if it, you're
0: the family, right? They knew
2: what to do medically, they knew what to do, right? It, it just didn't happen appropriately because of the lack of information and collaboration, right? So
0: And so you have to ask yourself that if you, that um, is that a family that really wants to help with what they recognize as limitations and collaboration and data flow have really been uninvited. If you will, to the party. Um, It's a very interesting phenomenon to me to see the most brilliant and educated people um, walk into an exam room and become completely passive. They almost like change personalities in that they become very submissive. They become very um, uh, passive in that they sort of forget what the agenda was. The doctor drives the visit. They feel hurried, um, and they forget what they wanted to do, and they forget 90% of what was said in the exam before they get to their car. So, if those are your if those are your constant data points, and that data is is not really being memorialized and shared, then you can see how the system really becomes so incredibly inefficient. So, so really, what we found in some of the core problems was is that you could you could really see a couple things. One is that the patient and their family are highly underutilized assets of healthcare, Yep. meaning that we really have not leveraged them as proprietor owners of, of their data or vessels to which they can help the other doctor be brought up to date quickly so that that person can now make a better decisions and more informed and sort of you know, help the person with their healthcare journey. The other thing is we recognize is that there really is no air traffic control for patients in the U.S., Meaning that each of these points of care are kind of like airports and you are sort of, you know, told to sort of land here and take off and you're, to- you're told to sort of head in that direction, but there's no air traffic control to be certain that you reach the destination. Right. And so what we have found is that even when patients wanted to navigate to the next airport, they often didn't get there on time or just frankly landed up at the wrong airport and so we really knew that not only did you sort of need the information of a flight plan, but you really needed the guidance to, to be able to to coordinate care for a patient. And that's really what CareSync evolved into by 2013. And so in 2011, it sort of proverbially did the put the band back together episode, right. hired my people back from Scripts. We started Q1 of 2011, we hunkered down, we really built a family-based EMR that now had the social sharing, that the data now could be familytized, and then we launched it with a nursing service in April 2013. Okay. And so yes, this predates the coolness of the code, right. but what we found is that you have to have the human element, and you also have to have the technology element, one or the other doesn't work. And it's sort of kind of like, um, you know, it's any two ingredients that make up a molecule, but it's it, it's worth nothing until you put the two, the two elements together. And what we found was is that people really want to be owners of their data and they really want to sort of share it and feel like they're more meaningful at these episodes of care. They have no clue how to get it. Right. And even if they get it, they don't know how to assemble it in a way that makes it useful to the person that they're trying to share it with. And such that that person now reinforces that it was valuable. And so you, you really need to keep the sort of the feedback loops yeah. going. And so that's really kind of why CareSync started and what we sort of found in the early days were the necessary ingredients um, for what now is, is CareSync.
2: What's interesting about that and, and just uh, what I would tell you is if you'd come to me in 2011 with the idea, I would have probably sat across the room from you and said, holy cow, you're so right about this because we know That we're kind of sitting ducks in the healthcare system to the point where we're we're const—we don't have a lot of people. And I and I reflect to my parents who are who are uh, you know older. They they go to the doctor. The doctor sort of tells them something. They leave, and I say, "Did you ask him this? Did you ask him that? Did you ask him this?" And they say, "No, I didn't think to do that." And that's because you know it's not that kind of environment. The the care delivery environment is not an interactive environment, generally speaking, unless the patient goes in there and and is prepared to be interactive, right? Is ready to have Mm -hmm. that interaction with the doctor. So I would have said, okay, I love this idea because it really creates a family element to be sort of an overseer or ombudsman, whatever you want to call it, so that the patient, the family member, gets the right answers, the right care, and the right treatment. But I would have said to you, how the heck are we going to find all these customers? <laughs> that would have been, and, I would have, and you and I would have probably spent hours talking about, again, before the code, which I want to just hold for a second. But what did you think you were going to do when you built this to get customers? I'm, I'm interested in that question.
0: You know, I, I think that we really thought that there were enough disenfranchised people with the healthcare experience that would pay a premium to to sort of take the, the TSA pre-check line, right? Was there something that we could do that would would offer up an experience that felt that you, the individual, as a patient or a caregiver, would be more in command and control? Mm-hmm. And we did. We were actually found that we could con- convert about 3% of those that we advertised through, through Facebook, on the web, et cetera, that they would pay us a couple $300 to basically go out and create their longitudinal record and help them make appointments. And so there was a model, though it was somewhat aggressive model, um, but was at least in the, the sort of same experience that Dropbox and Evernote had had, is that you would sort of create something that 95 to 97% of the users would use the free version. But the premium version is where you would drive your revenue from. So we did find that there were people throughout the U.S., and, and candidly, you know, in about nine different other countries that that felt passionate enough that they wanted to be um, assertive and or they wanted to be a better caregiver. And that doing that, they understood that they really had to start with the data. Mm -hmm. And so there was a business model there, not nearly as attractive as the one we have now. Sure. um, But there were enough, you know, uh, directed to consumer uh, convert, if you will, to at least argue about creating a, vi- a viable financial model.
2: And were you going to market this through hospitals? Were you going to market it through the web or through direct advertising? No, we, what did you think yeah, you we, were going to do? Or AARP? I mean, there's a lot of places I could think of that could do it if you could get you know, those, it was actually, things turned on. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it it was really just the Internet um, and Facebook and so with Facebook and some other things that you're able to sort of get to some data where they can match up your ad to, you know, to people of a certain demographic or, you know, a certain interest. Their interest might be in, you know, juvenile diabetes. And so one would make the assumption that they themselves or someone else would have juvenile diabetes. Uh, and so that's where we would really had, had targeted our ad spend, and then just going to sort of different types of shows, trade shows, and other type of conferences that were specific around a disease. Mm-hmm. So you had kind of a, a a motivated population within those within those sub demographics that said, "Yes, I want my data. I'm tired of you know my doctor telling me one thing and something else happening, or those two doctors don't talk, and so I'm going to make them talk by getting all the data in one place." Cool.
2: All right. So now we're we're, we're, uh, when did, when did, well, first of all, let me talk about CMS because wh- whatever people want to say about government and the, the lack of innovation, I like the guys at CMS. I think they come up with some pretty cool stuff. Um, and certainly value-based reimbursements, a great idea. And it feels like chronic care management might be a great idea. So give me some background. Basically the, the, um, CMS is saying for Medicare patients with chronic disease, physicians can monitor them and, 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 and get paid to do that. When did this idea start and, um, and what kind of data led to its implementation and, and when did it get kicked off
0: for you guys? Well, it, it, um, it came on my radar somewhere around, I want to say, August 28th, 2014. So I remember it was within the 20s because um, I read um, how CMS was contemplating based upon a pilot that they had been running in 400 plus rural environments that said, you know, those that have chronic disease um, are obviously using the system. And when you have chronic disease, you have multiple providers that are sort of treating different body systems. And so Medicare had piloted, you know, this care coordination code for those that specifically have more than one chronic disease. And they found that they were getting, you know, a positive ROI. Huh. And they were, you know, basically a listening comment, and sort of saying, you know, do we, you know, does anyone in the industry have any sort of input on this, because we're thinking about turning it into a G code, and, and the G code is where you sort of have these these one offs that you know um, are not really at the evaluation and management level, by their you know, where you get your annual wellness visit and where you get your blood drawn, these sort of you know procedure type things that happen. Well, interesting thing that went from August to Sep to, to November. Um well first off I jumped out of my seat, ran out to the middle of, of, of our company's floor and I said, We got a code, stop whatever you're doing. <laughs> yeah. You know. Um I kinda of felt like we were a submarine that just got a ping of a battleship. I mean we knew exactly where to aim. Well you were built and, to do um, this, right? I mean you really yeah, we were I mean, it, but we, you were built to do yeah. it. And the torpedo tubes were already loaded, yeah. and so that was the beauty. Because since April twenty thirteen, we had nursing staff. We'd been coordinating care. We had been creating an aggregated longitudinal record. We'd been sort of bringing all this into one place and creating care plans. So it was like, oh my gosh, you know, this is really a gift from heaven. And um, and so we really did. We focused and fine tuned what Medicare was really saying, and what they were saying was, is that we want to fund. A bundled services um, where it creates a product of a care plan, but the elements that create a care plan is data from all the providers that a patient sees, reconciling and maintaining the, the usage of the medications that they're prescribed, coordinating with local psychosocial, other types of services that are within the community that not are necessarily points of care. So like, you know, support groups for diabetes, et cetera, you know, meals on wheels, other types of social services. And we want all this data to be shared with, God forbid, the patient. And so it really was exactly everything that we had done. But Medicare was saying this two things were, were drastically going in the wrong direction. One, they really recognized the fact that the patients and their caregivers are not really custodians of what the doctors said to do. So they really had no reasonable way to memorialize what their doctors were saying in such a way that it was impacting their behavior between the points of care. You know, if you have diabetes type 2 and you're being actively treated, you will spend less than 60 minutes with your providers to manage your diabetes in a calendar year. And so these really, these little points of sort of touched with the provider are so infrequent and are so poorly um, uh, operationalized, if you will, at, at, at the human level, that Medicare said, look, we really need somebody to consistently coordinate these people's care because there's so much going on. So that's one thing that they recognized and, and they outlined it beautifully. The other thing is, which I think is brilliant of them, is that they recognize that if you can hold the line with one or two chronic diseases longer, you can actually then stop these people from getting a third and a fourth Mm -hmm. and a fifth because the body is kind of like your car. If the brakes start to go and you do that, then other things start to go. It starts to sort of one kind of strain on a mechanical system will start to have other parts of that mechanical system fail. And the body is very much the same way. And so if your heart is over pumping, your kidneys hate that and other vessels in your body hate that. And so they try to fight back and then you start to get congestive heart failure and you start to get these other things. And so what they also understood the brilliance, I think, is that primary care really has been stripped away from a lot of the revenue opportunities. And so if you are going to sort of fight a war against the advancements of disease, which is really what we're talking about here in terms of it being measured by cost, and is that you really have to sort of give resources to the troops who have the best chance of sort of holding the enemy off. And the enemy in this case is the advancement of disease. Mm -hmm. Primary care really is sort of the most disorganized of all the specialties. And the least sort of advanced in their way of trying to really respond to a lot of the complexities that exist in healthcare. And while not all primary care is either underfunded or underled or undermanaged, many are. And so what happens is, is that then those patients gravitate to specialists. Sure. And then the specialists start taking more care of them. And and so what you find is that Medicare is basically always paying a specialist to take care of what should be just some primary issues. You know, once you've been diagnosed with diabetes, you can be treated and you can hold it. You will die of something else. And so, but here's where it all the roads connect. They're using this code to fund really the opportunity for primary care to use some resources to basically build their infrastructure so that, that now that they really can start to track patients where they live, work, and play outside the points of care so that now they're able to get this data that is value-based, and so without this sort of step into the evolution of getting physicians to think outside of the fee-for-service mentality into now more of a value-based, you have to put in technology to sort of get you there. When you look at chronic care management and why it does create a billion dollar, multi-billion dollar segment within our healthcare structure is because you have to be able to have the systems, the workflows, and other things in place to actually get the quality metrics that you now are going to be reimbursed on in 2018, mm-hmm. in the absence of that, you can't just throw a switch and transform an industry. That's you're bankrupt. No, it's funny. I hadn't projected it
2: out that far in my head, and that's uh, good. That's good that I, 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 I think I understood that was a possibility, but I just hadn't, you know, fully projected it out. Um, so, the idea you know, you've got this system where you have. And let's see if I can say the word familyatized it right. Um, what you're really saying is the, your product fits into this code because now you're going to add the doctor and a nurse call center, I assume, um, into the family, right? Correct. And, yeah, and, and that other doctors doctor is going to well. get reimbursed to participate as part of the family. Right. Is that a way, a good way to think about
0: it? That, that, that's a great way of, of describing it. So, so really what Medicare had said is that statistically, if you have two or more chronic conditions, you will have 6.1 providers that you see within a calendar year. Medicare is saying, I want one of you guys to basically elect and identify with the patient that you'll be the quarterback mm-hmm. and that as a quarterback, you will call the place to coordinate what should be happening or what is happening with the patients with the other 5.1 providers. And that the patient now knows that and creates a one-to-one relationship. The interesting thing about what Medicare did in this sort of bundle services requirement is that they said that quarterback now has a responsibility of sharing electronically and otherwise 24-7 an aggregated care plan with, a, with the patient. Right. But in order to do that, you have to get that data from those other five guys. And you now have to give it back to these other five guys and you can't use the fax machine. So immediately, they created a window of opportunity for technology innovators like ourselves to sit there and say, okay, we finally are sort of demoting the fax machine as a primary line of communication between facilities and we're now promoting the patient. And so, yes, when you think about what it really means to be sort of the care team or to ties this data, you find that which you, what you really have is even though you may have physicians who say, I'll be the quarterback and these other five guys are going to talk to me and I'm going to talk to them, there needs to be sort of the crank that keeps the process going. And physicians, that quarterback may very well not have the nursing staff to perform that task. Mm-hmm. And if you're you're going to include the patient and you're expected to use and take responsibility of being good stewards of these dollars, then you have to drive clinical quality. In order to drive clinical quality, you need the nursing component that can talk to the patient, can talk to all six providers and can talk to the caregivers because this patient might be 88 years old, doesn't drive and, and maybe not even candidly has good vision. So you have to utilize the family's resources of of delivering care that was prescribed to be certain that someone did get the meds delivered and gave the meds and got them to the appointments they need to do and do the other things that are required to sort of actually treat the patient. So the family is a very very important resource right. to educate.
2: So the the way the way this works is you create a care and I'm going to say what I think it is and you correct me. You you create a care plan and is that is, and then that's correct. And then it then is monitored and followed up um, by a service that is technically, as far as CMS is concerned, is provided by the primary care doctor. But your role is to take on the responsibility of providing that service on behalf of the physician. Is that, is that a good way to think about it?
0: That is correct. So the the mechanics of it is is that um, we are the virtual nursing room of the practice, And we operate under the rules of what's called Incident 2. So the doctor bills CMS for the function of the code. And the code has to be the function of delivering and coordinating the care to to count for the requirements of the code. You have to be a licensed nurse. Mm -hmm. And so our people are licensed nurses. We are building the care plan. And the care plan comes from all the six providers in my earlier example. And because this person has chronic disease, that care plan is not a fixed point in time. It's kind of like the weather. It was only accurate at the time you asked what the temperature was. Right. And that care plan continues to grow, shrink, expand, because these people have chronic disease. They're not healthy people, right? It is not just about a well, you know, visit plan. It's or well, you know, maintenance on your health or so forth. It's about maintenance of disease and disease is progressive. And so these care plans have to be updated and maintained um in a way that forces really the service to never disengage. I mean once you now start to coordinate care for people that have disease it is a forever process. Mhm.
2: Mhm. And I mean this is not a, this is not a is what's the number is it about $43 pmpm PM? is that the reimbursement? Card? It was.
0: We had some SGR fixes that that attempted to sort of balance the budget within Medicare and so we really are now about 41. Okay. Um, many of the codes kind of decreased um, Based upon them trying to sort of balance the budget, but it it was forty three dollars on average in twenty fifteen. It's now about forty one mm-hmm. across all the different locations in in the U S. Uh, on a month to month basis. And and does the patient have to pay some of that forty one? You know, in the absence of a secondary or supplemental, then they're responsible for twenty percent copay. No okay. different than they would be for a doctor's visit or an X ray or something. So it follows the same suit of you know Medicare pays 80% of what they say is allowable. Um, about 60% of the time, though, there is a secondary or supplemental involved, which does then take away the patient responsibility.
2: So it's a, it, if, if the patient were to pay for it, it's like $100 a year or something like that, right? So yes. And <clears throat> is this only applicable to fee-for-service patients or is it applicable to MA patients as well?
0: You know, it is. Um, it's it's very hard to sort of uh, be an MA plan and say you will not definitively pay for something that fee-for-service pays because the open enrollment process actually tells the patients that they're going to get a premium Medicare plan. Mm-hmm. And so what you find is, is that um, one by one, we have had the opportunity to educate MA plans that denied the code um, to familiarize themselves with what the code's intention was. And that is it is, actually does bend the cost curve. Sure. And so all MA plans are, are for-profit. And so, um, you know, more times than not, we continue to convert MA plans to, to adopt the code. The nice thing about the MA plans is that um, more than not, they end up adopting the code without the copay. And so there are many cases like Humanical and others that will pay 100%. Hi,
1: everyone. I just want to take a quick break from this conversation to uh, ask you to sign up for the Breaking Health newsletter. It's a great companion for the Breaking Health Podcast. In fact, it will deliver the Breaking Health Podcast to your inbox uh, every Sunday if you're not already signed up on iTunes. So go to healthogy.com. The company's name is healthogy, healthegy.com. Healthogy puts out the Breaking Health Publications and Podcasts and also holds the uh, Digital Healthcare Innovation Summit, which will be uh, held in November in Boston. So Sign up for the breaking health newsletter, and by all means attend the digital healthcare innovation summit in November in Boston. Now back to this
2: conversation. So back to so the Med, the Medicare Advantage plans will pay uh, all forty one dollars um, to to the doctor, and you I assume work out an agreement with the doctor to charge some portion of that for your services,
0: right? So we it. do, and and I don't want to miss to mislead your listeners. Not all MA plans are behaving nicely. Um, okay. TriCare. Um, Federal Blue Cross Blue Shield, there are some plans that you think clearly would recognize this as a valid Medicare code and pay for it. And they pay nothing. Um, They flat out deny it. And so we continue to sort of campaign them to to sort of explain themselves. But a lot of MA plans pay. Not all do. But I think that this is part of what is the natural progression is, is that we started with a pilot that obviously had a positive ROI. Medicare recognized it such that they actually elevated this from a G-code to a 9-9 code, meaning it is part of the evaluation and management stack of what a provider does in terms of delivering direct care to a patient. Mm-hmm. And now I've created a non-face-to-face sort of way to not just generate revenue but track patients. But all of this really does improve the quality of care, and it gets the physician more engaged with talking to other doctors, these are things that are also very vital to the United Health Cares and the Aetna's and Cygnus of the world. And so I think that what you're going to find is that the evolution of the Medicare to Medicare Advantage to Medicaid to commercials, that that is something that we will see that will happen um, very realistically within 2017.
2: Terrific. Well, I got a couple more questions here. I think we've just got a few more minutes left. but I would like to to ask you this uh, question. I, I I estimated, or maybe somebody else estimated, and the number just stuck in my head, that if everyone who qualified, every patient that qualified for the program, were in the program, that the number would be well over ten billion dollars a year in in potential revenue for primary care practices. Is that is that a good number? Is that the right?
0: That's number? actually correct. So we have about you know plus or minus, but about thirty five million Americans that. Are on Medicare that have two or more chronic conditions, okay. and so well, just taking that one. number, multiplying it by twelve and by forty-one, um, you actually get a number that's much bigger than ten billion. <laughs> yes, you do.
2: You get a very big
0: number. The and interesting thing is, if you if you if you if you look at our entire population, um, more than half of us have more than one chronic condition. Yeah. So, you know, as you expand the payer base, you can find that that number could easily go from thirty from ten to thirty billion dollars a year, so in so required coordination care.
2: So this sort of gets me to my last question. And then, and then. by the way, thank you very much for your time. It was really fun talking to you. Um, thank you. With all that money coming in, obviously, you don't get to do this alone. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, where do you think the spots for differentiation uh, are in, in, in the business model? And, and wh- where do you think you see the variables of competition uh, ultimately ending up?
0: Well I think that really what you have is is as one of my sales guys says is um you know new CCM companies are like mushrooms after a spring rain. They just pop up everywhere. I think I think here's just some some real back of the napkin uh requirements, if you will, for sustainability in this space. Many are entering or entering only from a technology perspective, not sustainable. Um clearly a a sub ten percent of those are providing CCM are actually doing it themselves meaning that a vast majority of those that are doing it are doing it with staff members that are either part of a larger organization or have been outsourced to a vendor like ourselves. We obviously have a differentiation because we've been doing this since 2013. So we were doing it the same way we're doing it now, well before it was cool, but we were doing it in such a way that we knew that we were going after a, a much more strict sort of operational efficiency requirements that had to please the consumer. Mm-hmm. Right. We had to have we had to create an experience that would have a person just swipe their credit card month over month over month. I think that what you're going to find is that because the doctors are so wildly attractive in terms of new revenue opportunity that many people will come on, will, will come into the space. But here's where you have some real barriers of entry. One is you need a workforce to do it. And, and that's hard to sort of get that going and operationalize. Um, at CareSync, we hire a nurse every calendar day to sort of give you some level of, of scope of growth what you find is that many organizations aren't really ready to do that and if they and they have to be funded to do that so if you're going to look at sort of the landscape for sustainability and remember that we are the virtual nursing arm of a practice you really need to be able to project and demonstrate that you have viability long term mm. to be really what is a, a functional arm that brands yourself as a provider back into the patient's home. You can't have that vendor change every six months because you really are trying to build a relationship to which you can influence your care back to the point of into where they live, work, and play. So from a competitive landscape, I think that we're going to find those that are starting to think long-term, and we don't know their names yet. We've seen those that pivoted, kind of similar that we did, that whatever they're doing said stop. Let's go do CCM. And we've seen that some of those um, really don't have the robust level of, of offering that we do because we've approached it where we recognize the friction points of behavior. We recognize the fact that you do need to include the family. And so your architecture either allows for that or it doesn't, and ours did. So we still really... Um, you know, we enjoy the fact that, that, based upon the data that's available, we are clearly the number one in the space. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's just because we were doing those things that were very risky in 2011, 12, and 13. But I think you're going to find other people enter the space. But unless they can really demonstrate that they've raised five to ten million dollars, I don't think that they're viable as an organization because this is a labor-based solution that needs to be technologically abled. And so you have to bring all those things together. And that's not just something you kind of start out of your garage.
2: Well, thank you. I could keep going, obviously, because my curiosity would get the better of me. But I think we've uh, taken up a lot of your time today, and I really appreciate uh, you going you're going through this with me. I enjoyed the I enjoyed the conversation very much.
0: Well, I appreciate the opportunity as well, and and for you educating your listeners. I think that in order for for healthcare to really have improvement, it's really going to take an army of thinkers and innovators, and and those who just want to roll up their sleeves. So we are here to help the industry as a whole grow. I know that we have a nice little segment that we now get to to be air traffic control for those who have chronic disease, Um, but it still takes takes a whole village to do it.
2: (laughs) Travis Bond, CEO of CareSync. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you so much, Steve.
1: Travis Bond, thank you for joining us on the Breaking Health podcast. I'm excited, really excited by CareSync's approach as someone who uh, has had to care for elderly family members. uh, A tool like CareSync's would have been uh, really indispensable. So I I wish you the best of luck and hope you bring uh, relief and aid to uh, many families who are facing some difficult challenges. Kate Krupa of the Silas Group. Thank you, as always, for uh, leading an informative and entertaining conversation. Uh, It's great to learn about uh, CareSync and uh, really uh, appreciate your insights on the healthcare space. And a final big thank you to our Breaking Health podcast listeners. We really do uh, appreciate you uh, joining us uh, on every podcast. Uh, We had a bit of a hiccup last week. We weren't able to get one out to you, but uh, we're back on schedule. So we'll uh, talk to you next week on the Breaking Health Podcast.